A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Previously on Mentally Yours. You know, mental health is mental, whereas Tourette's is more physical, I guess. But it's kind of both. But I do feel that it gets left out. I hadn't seen anything about it, really, until, like, the Undatables existed. Yeah, and that's not great. Not yeah, great. I think any time you see something that you have being described as undateable, undateable. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> great. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. A podcast on your mental health you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. While you're here, you should check out our other podcast, which is Good Sex, Bad Sex, not about mental health, but about sex. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week's guest is the lovely Juno Dawson. She's here to chat about her new book, which is called Clean. Juno is a fantastic writer. She's done tons of books for young adults. She's also an author and columnist. She writes for Attitude magazine and Glam magazine. um, And she's a role model for Stonewall. She's chatting to us about her new book, which is called Clean, and it's out now. It's about a South London hotel heiress called Lexi Volkov. And the book starts with her intervention in that her brother has basically kidnapped her because she's a 17-year-old heroin addict. And once she's in rehab and fully detoxed, you start to sort of unravel the onion, as it were, and start to realise how it is a 17-year-old can come to be a heroin addict, especially one with as much privilege as Lexi has had. What kind of research did you do um, for that sort of storyline? I didn't. And this has been the disappointment of many a tabloid journalist. I didn't do any heroin. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It would have been so so much more interesting to say, yes, I did do a whole bunch of drugs, but I didn't. So the book started from a starting point of I moved to London initially in 2011, right like a week after the London riots. And... I moved to Clapham Junction, which was, of course, affected. St John's Hill was affected by rioting. And about a year after that, there was a big Evening Standard front page about this very wealthy young Chelsea girl who had basically been a getaway driver during the sort of ram raids on TK Maxx on St John's Hill. And I was intrigued as to how a girl from very much the right side of the river had become sort of involved in rioting on the other side of the river. Mm. And 
she was the seed of Lexi. And so I lived in Battersea. So I took myself over the bridge to Chelsea and spent some time in Chelsea and Fulham and trying to wonder how the other half live. And I've said this a lot. I think Clean is a book about privilege as much as it is about addiction. And what I realized quite quickly is I don't think mental health cares how wealthy you are. Actually, and at the same time, there was the very high profile case of the Riesling um, family who, who, of course, both died on Sloan Square of, of heroin overdoses and, and they came from phenomenal wealth. And so, yeah, that, I think that was the starting point. And in terms of research, I had to be a little bit careful because I decided not to attend AA or NA meetings. I didn't think it was right, even though they do have open sessions for friends and family. I didn't think it was okay for me to go and basically harvest their trauma. So instead, I relied on the testimonies of people who were in various stages of recovery to tell me what going through the 12 steps is like. Why do you think we have such sort of, we, we deal with people from different aspects of society sort of in that way? Because as you said, if you are very privileged and you, you have a problem with addiction, the idea is, oh, you just go off to the priory and it's almost mm. like a holiday. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, maybe if you're from mean streets of Liverpool or somewhere, maybe you might live in sort of a rougher area. And if you have a problem with addiction there, it seems that something sort of kind of scarier, more dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, there's not that sort of same sort of aspect. I think possibly your prognosis is probably vastly better if you come from great wealth. And a few of the people that I spoke to who were going through recovery did have to acknowledge that, you know, it was either their own wealth that had got them residential treatment or it was family wealth. And actually, I think this does happen very often, quite quietly, because I think families are quite ashamed of it. They shouldn't need to be, but I think they are, which is very often parents and grandparents financially provide for their children to go through rehab because there are precious few rehab places available on the NHS and the waiting lists are very, very high. So pretty much everybody I spoke to had at some point accessed private rehab because it's just so much quicker. So I think your chances of recovery are improved if you come from wealth, but I don't think being wealthy is going to stop you from becoming addicted in the first place. I think mm. addiction like depression and anxiety, because I think very often they're linked. I don't think it cares how much money you have, to be honest. Um, and in fact, if anything, I think that sense of, and I, I know sort of, I had this when I was a teenager and I was struggling with anxiety issues. You know, people did you say to me, what do you have to worry about? And so then on top of the anxiety, you would all, you would feel an additional burden of shame because you know, you know that you're supported and you know that you're surrounded by supportive people. And I imagine if you're very, very wealthy, you know that you have this financial safety net. I think people find it difficult to have sympathy for very privileged people as well, even though you know, we know that it's a serious thing, addiction, mental health issues. I think a lot of time there's a feeling of like, well, they're rich, like, yeah. screw them. Especially celebrities. I suppose yeah. that's kind of like the, the extreme of that, isn't it? When you sort of see celebrities that have gone through sort of really difficult times. Um, and those are the ones very often that we do see. <sighs> um, so I think with addiction, you know, it's hard to discuss addiction without talking about Peaches Gelder or Amy Winehouse or Aunt McPartlin or Russell Brand, because these are very much the public face of addiction. And I think it's it's very sad, 
because obviously they have mental health problems. But also I suppose there is maybe some solace to take in that they can become beacons. And I think Russell Brand, I mean, he was a huge part of my research for Clean. You know, Russell Brand's writing about addiction, I think, is second to none. I think it's wonderful. Of the people that you talked to about addiction and about sort of coming clean as well, were there any sort of common themes that you picked up? Yeah, maybe it's because I was looking out for it. Because when I started writing, the worry that I had was, is it realistic that a 17-year-old would be a heroin addict? You know, is this pure gossip girl nonsense? But very, very quickly, as soon as I started to research and without me really having to pull it too far out of them, it became really obvious that the problem had started in adolescence or teenagehood, if that's the word. You know, addiction doesn't start overnight. You don't drink once or take a drug once and bam, you're addicted. And I think this is the problem that I have with the way we teach substance abuse in schools, which is I do think some schools still pass on this message that don't do drugs or you will be addicted, which is so incredibly simplistic. And then I think the problem with that is when you do do drugs, and you experiment with drugs as a teenager and you realise, oh, would you look at that? I did drugs and I'm A, not addicted and I'm B, not living in a doorway. You think my teachers were wrong. It must be safe. And actually, so you do it again and again. You think, oh, yeah, look, it's safe. It's safe. And before you know it, of course, you end up where Lexi is, which is, you know, she doesn't admit she has an addiction. But it's really clear from chapter one, she is both physically and mentally dependent on opiates. And same with like sex education. Like there's such a distance from actually talking about it that you are just like, oh, well, they're making it all up. And you do think it's completely safe because they've been proven wrong in that aspect, which is quite scary. Yep. I think, you know, we base a lot of sex education around how babies are made and how babies are born, which yeah. is really valuable. And I think, you know, we do, we can look at the impact on teen pregnancy and STIs and think, great, we're, we're doing something right. <laughs> and I think, you know, particularly since the 80s and 90s in the AIDS crisis, teaching of condom use has been really, really good. But I think what we do very, very badly is the relationship part of sex and relationship education. I don't think we teach young boys and girls how to say no or how to talk about things they do and don't want to do, how to resist the pressures of sending um, naked pictures and things like that. And I think we do that very badly. So in terms of the treatment programs and um, yeah, the way that heroin sort of addiction is, I don't know, managed is, managed is the right word, but yeah, the way that treatment programs are managed, what sort of things did you find out in your research and what do you think of the current ways that people are treated? There was a lot of research to do about that and it's broadly done the same way. The important thing, I guess, is to get people to use the buzzword clean. Usually this is either done with synthetic opiate substitutes. Obviously the most popular one is methadone, um, which the idea is to gradually reduce the dosage to wean you off the opiates. Um, there is another drug called Suboxone, which is the one that Lexi has put on in the book. And again, the the, the idea is that basically what you're addicted to is the opiate and you have to very gradually come off that um, in, in steps. Rarely, I don't think, I don't think there's many doctors who would recommend that you do the classic cold turkey, which is incredibly difficult, although people have done and will do. Um, 
But then the, I suppose the bigger issue is it goes, and you know this, it goes so much beyond the physical dependency to the drugs. Yes, you have to deal with the physical dependency to the drugs, but you also have to explore the underlying reason for the addiction. And maybe that's the difference that somebody like Lexi would have compared to somebody living on the streets of Glasgow using heroin. The difference is that Lexi is in a residential facility where therapists and talking therapies can go into how is it that you became addicted to these substances and what can we do? What changes can we make to your life behaviorally to make sure that you don't turn back to drugs when when things get tough again, which inevitably they will. How much of a focus is there on kind of the mental side of things in rehabilitation places? Because I always assumed it was more the physical thing and you're kind of left on your own to do the rest. I think good doctors and good treatment centres know now that it is about so much more. I think possibly, and this is so emblematic of the way that, and again, the last thing I want to do is demonise the NHS because it's so wonderful. But part of the issue with the way that we treat mental health is there's a lot of people requiring NHS treatment and we've got to treat them quickly. Oh, you're anorexic. We need to get your weight up. Oh, you're depressed. Let's get your serotonin up. Oh, you're on heroin. Let's get you off heroin. And the problem is that that kind of thinking doesn't treat why a person is starving themselves or why a person is manic depressive or bipolar or why, you know, it's, it goes beyond the physical. Mental health is so much more than chemicals in our brain or chemicals in our bodies. And we, we have to, I think, look at the underlying reasons for drug abuse or for an eating disorder or for depression or anxiety. Because I imagine if you don't, like the likelihood of relapse must be so high as So well. much higher, of course. Yeah. So in the long run, it would benefit the NHS to tackle the underlying causes and good doctors and good treatment centres would will do. So you mentioned your own anxiety um, earlier. How did your own sort of experience of mental health issues inform this this book and your writing? It's funny because it's through my writing, strangely, that I almost came to my own diagnosis. And this was going back when I was working on This Book is Gay, which was when I sort of started my transition. And then with Mind Your Head, that was when I was like, oh, my gosh, you have anxiety. There is a word for it. You're not just a worrier. You know, you, you... you genuinely have panic attacks about public transport. That's not normal. A lot of people don't do that kind of. Um, So strangely, my writing has been very therapeutic. But I think with Lexi, because I've never been an addict, and I, I strangely, when I look back through my family, there's not much of a history of addiction. And obviously, there's been a lot of research about is addiction hereditary. I had to look at what we had in common. And I think the thing that Lexi and I have in common was that sense of guilt, that sense of, for, for me, you don't have anything to be anxious about. And for Lexi, you don't have anything to be sad about. And um, and that was the starting point. And so going from that place of similarity and having those things in common enabled me to try and sort of empathise with how it is she's become to be a heroin addict. What did you learn from that experience? Because you were looking at the kind of similarities that you had, but obviously, I know obviously Lexi is fictional, but you went on different paths as a result of that. What did you learn about why those differences happen? I think part of my job is to imagine what it's like to be other people. I know there's, there is a very important conversation about own voices and why it is trans people should write trans characters or gay people should write gay characters or black people should write black characters. But I do think part of being an author is walking around in other people's shoes. I think it's how you go about that. And, you know, I think some authors do it better than others. But 
so me and Lexi have this big difference which is that she's a heroin addict. I'm not a heroin addict. But there are close friends of mine who have read it and said, oh, there's bits of you in there. And, you know, Lexi, I always say she's like me. Possibly if I'd had the kind of opportunities she had had in life, um, I could go for Lexi because, of course, she's a very difficult character. And I don't want to use the word diva because I think diva is such a gendered word. But, you know, she's a handful. She's incredibly rude, sarcastic, selfish, self-centered, obnoxious. She's me on my very worst days. And it's strange, the more successful you get in the publishing or they're in the media industries, the more people let you get away with things. And sometimes I have to say to myself, just because you can get away with that doesn't mean you should actually, because, you know, you're in a position where, you know, people will send a car for you or will do these things. You're like, no, because you're, you're being lazy and obnoxious and rude. Don't do it. And so it was quite fun to be Lexi because, She's a brat. And, you know, I don't want to be a brat, but it was it was quite therapeutic for me just to sort of let it all out, actually. I love her. She's, <laughs> she's a nightmare, but I do love her. Can we talk for a minute um, about mental health and the trans community? I don't want this to be sort of the whole focus of the thing. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the book, which is the main thing. Um, but what do you think are the main challenges facing maybe not necessarily the trans community but the way that the public thinks about the trans community and mental health well i mean i'm really glad you brought that up because i think it's totally way more way more important than my novel we know we know 48 percent of young trans people have tried to kill themselves i mean that's not just thought about it that's actively swallowed the pills or cut themselves or, or whatnot and that's you know, I can't quite wrap my head around that, that half of young trans people have tried to kill themselves. Um, we, I think it, we're five times more likely to have a diagnosed mental health condition. Now, this isn't because we're trans. In fact, they've just finally, they've properly and definitively stated now that being transgender is not a mental illness. I think it's a confirmation of a lot of things. I think it's that fear of rejection. And I think that's something all LGBT people listening to this will be very familiar with, that you assume almost that that's it for you and your family. It's carrying it around as a secret. That's like a massive burden. And it really takes a toll. You know, it took me a year to pluck up the courage to tell people I thought I was trans. And then I did it very much in baby steps. It's the reaction on the street. You know, people staring at you, taking pictures of you on their phone, asking if you're a boy or a girl, calling you names, just the staring, you know. And, and so eventually that just means that leaving the house is harder. And gosh, leaving the house is something I used to really take for granted. You know, oh, I'll just pop down and get a coffee. Well, I wouldn't now. I mean, now I might because I've come a long way. It's, it's been four years. I look very different now. I can hide behind my hair like that girl from the ring if need be. But in the early days of my transition, if I wanted to go get a coffee, I felt like I needed to put on a lot of makeup so that I hoped the world would respond to me as a woman. And that's grueling. I sometimes wonder as well if it's just sheer tiredness, just how exhausting it is to be trans in a society that isn't quite there yet. And I think in 20 years, society might. I mean, don't get me wrong, homophobia is real. And I don't know any of my gay or lesbian friends who haven't experienced homophobia. But I think now, by and large, gay men and lesbians can 
go out <laughs> without fear. Whereas I think for trans people, I'm not there yet. I still worry about public transport and leaving the house. And it just grinds you down. Mm. It really does. From what you said, it just sounds like a huge amount of stress placed on people, which then yeah, I mean, it's a could way. trigger something. I mean, I should, I mean, I should have probably said this at the beginning. You know, it's great as well. Being trans is great. Because before I was trans, I was carrying around, I think, a much worse burden, which was I was playing this kind of weird fancy dress for 28 years. And I would extend that challenge to anybody, which is, would you fancy wearing fancy dress for 28 years with no intervals? Because that's what it was for me to live as a boy. I felt ridiculous. I felt absurd. I felt every single day that I lived as a boy, I felt like I was failing, failing at being myself, failing at being a boy, failing at being a girl. And that was awful. So I'm much, much happier to finally be able to say, this is it. No more secrets. This is truly who I am. No more plot twists. But then you do have to take on this part-time job on top of your real job and on top of any other stresses you have in your life about money or relationships. And the new one is, is this the day I'm going to get murdered? Is this the day that somebody's going to kick my head in? Or is this the day, you know, and like any woman, is this the day that I'm going to get raped? Is this the day that, you know, some cab driver is not going to drive me home and he's going to drive me down a dark alley? So it's a real double whammy because, of course, I had to very quickly adjust to the realities of living as a woman. And as soon as you start being perceived as a woman, you get all of it. You do get the cat calls and the nice tits and all those kind of things. So, you know, so now I don't just worry about being raped. I worry that, oh, this cab driver might try and rape me. He's going to discover I'm trans. So then he'll kill me. Um, so, so it's a lot to contend with. I am not surprised by statistics about trans people and mental health. Look at it that way. Not a surprise in the slightest. This is a huge question, but Go what on. can we do to make it better? Because we can't, you know, wait another 20 years for people to catch up and just well, this, deal with it. This helps. I mean, for a really, really long time, trans people were so invisible and so silent. I think a massive turning point for us in the UK was Nadia on Big Brother. I think during those 12 weeks, Nadia did more to humanise the trans community than anything in the 2005 years leading up to that. And since Nadia, obviously, you know, we've seen a very slow trickle of trans people in the public eye. And that helps. It's a process of normalising it. And it's a process that gay men and lesbians and bi people, I guess, kind of had to get through during the AIDS epidemic. And it was hard because the media was out for gay people during that time with very sharpened knives. But, you know, a process including people like Ellen DeGeneres and Will and Grace and Brian Dowling and Rylan have helped the public at large to understand that LGB people don't pose any sort of a threat to the population at all. We're not there yet with trans people. Mm. So every trans person who is given a voice or a position in the media, hopefully is helping people to see, oh, this is just another way to be human. It might not be the way that I'm human, but we're all just human and it's normal for her. And so I think actually you're, you're doing exactly the right thing, which is lending me your, very literally lending me your microphone. Mm -hmm. 
thanks very much to Juno. So one of the things that I found really interesting about our chat with her was, I mean, it really struck me when she came out and said that um, being trans is no longer a disorder. Yes. Now, that really took me aback, to be honest. Not because It, it took me aback because I didn't realise that it had been considered um, a mental disorder. So when she said that, I didn't respond because I was basically dumbstruck because I didn't realise that it wasn't considered a mental health thing. So to clarify, for a long time, um, being trans or having gender dysphoria, which is when your gender identity doesn't match with the gender you were born into, um, used to be under the mental, behavioural and neurodevelopmental disorders in the basically big list of illnesses. Um, People were campaigning against that for quite some time because they were saying it's not a disorder Mm. and it's not like, you know, depression or a behavioural issue that you want to fix. So it's a massive deal that it's now covered underneath conditions related to sexual health. Right, yeah. So it's not a disorder, it's a condition, and it's specifically about sexuality and gender mm. rather than mental health. But I think that's so interesting, isn't it? That's only happened so recently, and before that, technically, it was considered an illness. And I think that sort of kind of makes me realise partly how far we've come in terms mm. of sort of the way that we sort of think about these things maybe, but but also how much further we still have to go because if that's only just been changed a lot of people still find it hard to get their head around these sort of concepts don't they and you you only have to see like you know trump getting upset about all trans people in the military or people getting upset about trans people in bathrooms for no reason i mean who, who cares about that but you know people do get upset about these things yeah so it's yeah that really shocked me and the thing is it's not even actually going to be in effect until probably around january 2020 Mm -hmm. because basically they propose it but then it has to get approved by all the people in the un agreeing with it Mm -hmm. but once that happens it will genuinely affect like medical care and laws because people do use the fact that it's categorized under mental health disorder to influence like basically policy change and stuff like that around being trans Mm. so it's a massive deal but it's, you know, it is shocking and quite scary that it's just been listed under that for so long. Same mm. with homosexuality, which again wasn't listed under the correct category and that was contributing to mass amounts of stigma. So it's kind of similar to what the change that that's been going through is now happening slowly for being trans. So this is goodbye from mentally If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact Samaritans on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. Thanks very much to our guest, Juno Dawson. Thanks to our producer, Sam Bonham, and to Lucy Baker for the jingles. You can join us online. We've got a safe space for chatting about all things mental health. Just search for Mentally Yours on Facebook. We've also got a Twitter account that's at Mentally Yours with YRS at the end. See you next week. <laughs>